Well, I'm turning in my Bible to Mark chapter 14. I hope you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark 14 as well, whether it's one you brought with you or a pew Bible in front of you or a mobile device that people are using today to pull up Scripture. Mark is our second of the four Gospels, and in chapter 14, Jesus is just a few days away from the cross. And of course, we're in the Lenten season, which is that journey towards the cross and towards Easter. And we see a beautiful story here of an an unnamed woman, an unnamed woman who goes to a banquet table, and it's a banquet table of love, and she brings a reciprocal gift of love too. In verse 3, chapter 14 of Mark. While he, meaning Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Was this a man that Jesus had cured of leprosy? We, we don't know, but it may well have been that he had been known as Simon the leper all of his life. And now Jesus has, has brought some healing to him. By the way, they are reclining at table. If you can picture the scene of how the Jews uh, ate at their banquets, they sat in a reclining position on the left elbow around the table so that they could reach across with their right hand. You got that picture in your mind? They're not sitting up in chairs like you and I do now. They are literally, as the text says, reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. More than likely, it was imported from the country of India, which is why it was so expensive. It was some oil extracted from a nard plant there. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Perfume was used certainly to um, put on your head or your hair to make you smell good. It was also used by the Jews to anoint a body following death. Kind of interesting that she's anointing Jesus just days before his death. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. That perfume apparently cost a year's worth of wages that a day laborer would have earned working in the fields. So somehow this woman has collected this money, quite a bit of money. It's an expensive perfume because it has to be imported all the way from India, and the whole jar... The flat, that gobular flask has been broken and all of it poured on Jesus' head. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them at any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done 
will also be told in memory of her. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have several groups of Oakmonters on Wednesday night who are studying the book by Philip Yancey entitled Vanishing Grace. Vanishing Grace. In that book, Philip Yancey tells the story that is told originally by Mark Rutland. Mark Rutland is a pastor. He's a former university president. He is also now president of an organization called Global Servants. And in his book, Mark Rutland's book, Streams of Mercy, he um, references a survey that was done um, by Americans a number of years ago in which the surveyors, the pollsters, asked Americans, what are the words that you would most like to hear the most? What are the words that you would like to hear the most? Well, Mark Rutland writes that he wasn't really surprised about the number one answer. The number one answer of what Americans would like to hear most, the words they would like to hear most, are these words, I love you. Those are great words to hear. Words that spouses share with each other, words that hopefully flow between parents and children and maybe even brothers and sisters and other family members and friends. I love you. That's a powerful set of words, isn't it? You know what number two was? I forgive you. I forgive you. Those are powerful words, too. I forgive you. You know what the third words that Americans wanted to hear most? Now, if you've read Philip Yancey's book, you, you already know. So you can't cheat and whisper to a neighbor. The third most popular words that Americans wanted to hear most. Supper's ready. How about that? Supper's ready. Boy, I know my ears perk up when my wife yells that phrase. Because she's a great cook and I love to eat her food. And when I'm hungry and supper's ready, those are great words to hear. And Mark Rutland said that it occurred to him later after seeing that survey that those three phrases really are an apt summary of what the good news of Jesus is all about. Because the reality is that every one of us, all of us, are loved by God. I love you. And every one of us, if we open our hearts to, us, to it, are forgiven by God. I forgive you. And every one of us in this world, all of us, are invited to the banquet table of God that's filled with love to come because supper's ready. Isn't that beautiful? I love you, I forgive you, supper's ready. It's a great description of what it means to follow Jesus and to know him and to be a part of his kingdom. But you know, there's another question that you and I ought to ask ourselves about those three phrases this morning as well. When we accept the invitation to that banquet table of love, will we respond to other people with an equal amount of love and forgiveness? And will we also have a depth of love in our hearts 
for the God who called us to that banquet table in the first place. Because the great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And only then can you love your neighbors, you love yourself. Now this lady who shows up at the banquet table of love there at Simon the leper's house, who himself, I'm sure, I mean, my guess is he had been a recipient of Jesus' healing love and power. This lady shows up at the banquet table of love, and she offers a reciprocal response of love to the one who epitomized all of that love. Against the great flow of criticism and the flow of rebuke, she opens up this entire flask, this glob globular uh, container that held this oil, this perfume. And, and now, now isn't this inter interesting? If you and I had perfume that cost us a year's wages, I don't know about you, but I might just drop a little drop on Jesus' head. Is that what you would do? Just take a little drop and put it on his head. No, she doesn't do that. She takes the entire container, the entire flask, and breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. And of course, those people watching the scene go ballistic. I mean, they're no fools. They, they see what's happening. They understand that this is an expensive perfume that's been imported from India. They understand that it cost a, a day laborer's Years worth of wages? They're no fools. Man, you think about how that money could have been spent in the ministry of the church. All the things. I mean, you talk about poor fiscal management by the stewardship team. My, oh my, oh my. Spending all of that money anointing Jesus' head. We could have given that money to the poor. We could have given that money to help a needy family. But what does Jesus do? Jesus is compelled by love. And he commends this woman who comes to that table of love with her reciprocal response of love. She was compelled by love to give her all to Jesus, even as Jesus very soon would give his all, his life, for this woman and for the sake of the world. I thought as I kind of studied and pondered this text this week that verse 8 was very interesting. Did, did you catch what Jesus said in verse 8? He, he said about the woman, she did what she could. Did you catch that? She did what she could. And that's a good question for you and for me this morning. Have you and I done what we could? Or are you and I doing what we can? Contributing generously and sacrificially, maybe even to the point of some extravagance on occasion, for the work that God has called us to share and to do together here at Oakmont. And when you give extravagantly, generously, sacrificially, is love your motivation? Is it a love that is grateful? Is it, is it a love that is mindful 
of the great sacrifice that Jesus offered in giving himself up for us. A giving that originates in the act of love. Doesn't the scripture that we always love to quote say, For God so, what? Loved the world that he, what? Gave. The giving didn't occur until the love happened. For God so loved the world that he gave. Now, you know people give for a lot of different motivations and reasons, don't they? People, not, not just in the sharing of your financial treasures and possessions, what comes out of your wallet, but your time, your talents, your passion, your energy. People give for a lot of reasons. You know, there are some people who, who give out of a sense of duty an obligation. They give because they have to and they ought to. They give out of a sense of responsibility and out of a sense of requirements. What's expected of me? Some people give out of, out of duty, obligation. You know, there's some people who give out of guilt. They give out of fear. They give out of that fear and guilt that originates in a judgment that this is what is going to happen to you if you don't give. So you know, I better get with the program because something bad, I'm afraid something bad will happen to me if I'm not faithful in my giving. It's a guilt and a fear. People give out of good motives. Over the last three Sundays, including today, you've heard some stories of some of our own Oakmont members who have shared with you their motives for giving. Two Sundays ago, we heard from Ben Wilson. And Ben talked about the release and the relief from being in debt that he and Angela experienced that enabled them now to really be generous givers. Last Sunday, we heard from Patty Mills. And Patty shared with us how she sees her giving as a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual habit. It's a discipline that has helped her to grow and mature in her faith. And now when she and her husband Dustin give, they really give out of a sense of gratitude to God for all the blessings that have occurred in their life and because they have so much joy in supporting financially the good stuff we're doing together. And then this morning you just heard from Wiley Nifog. And he described how he views giving when he and Daphne write their check as an act of worship before the Holy God. And these are all great reasons to give. But I want to remind you this morning that we shouldn't forget that the foundation for our giving that shapes a giving heart is ultimately love. For you and I understand that what we love and whom we love usually gathers and garners our greatest attention, our greatest time, our greatest commitment, our greatest loyalty, and it always gets our best. What you love or whom you love gets your best, right? Now, if you were here last Sunday, you heard me mention that the previous Saturday, this past Saturday a week ago, I went, drove down to Wilmington, Leslie and I drove to Wilmington so I could officiate a wedding. And what I didn't tell you is that the wedding was for our son Philip's wife's Rebecca, her sister. So our daughter-in-law's sister got married, Laura. 
And she had asked me some months ago to officiate the wedding. So what that meant, in addition to officiating the wedding for Leslie and me, is that Philip and his wife Rebecca came in on Wednesday night. They left Thursday morning to go to Wilmington to be involved in some of the pre-wedding activities with the family. And therefore, that meant that Leslie and I, <clears throat> Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, had grandson Grayson and grand dog Walter. <laughs> Have you got that picture in your mind? Now, from the time that Grayson, and, and, and trust me, Walter requires as much attention as Grayson. So from the time that they arrived on Wednesday night until they ultimately left on Monday morning, I just want you to understand, trust me, it was 100% Grayson and Walter in terms of a commitment, in terms of time. And I was reminded of that old saying that this is why God gives children to young people. Right? Those of you who are grandparents now, you understand that, that reality. And, and, you know, I'm sitting back thinking, now, you know, I had two children, and I did all of these things with my children, and why am I forgetting that I did all of these things? And why am I forgetting that they make you so tired and so worn out, right? So children and grand dogs and grandchildren, they, they require lots of energy. And, of course, Grayson, now, he's 19 months old. He's in the wedding, See, see I, we have in our wedding policies that we strongly discourage flower girls and ring bearers being under the age of five. And there's a reason for that. Because children are like deer in front of headlights in public gatherings, and you never know which way they're going to run. But luckily, little Grayson has a little tuxedo on held my son's hand, and they walked right down the aisle, and then they sat on the front row, and when the recessional took place, he grabbed his hand, and they walked out again. Now, now, what I want you to understand, you understand this, grandparents. You know exactly what I'm getting ready to tell you. The motivation of keeping your grandson or any grandchildren and a grand dog for that length of time is love, isn't it? I mean, my, my son didn't call me and guilt me into uh, keeping the grandson and Walter. They, they didn't say, now, now if you don't keep them, we're, we're going to take them from you and not let you see them for two years. They, they didn't say anything like that to us. And, and you know, there's a lot of good reasons to keep them. But the bottom line is, we all love them, don't we? And there's nothing that we wouldn't do for someone that we love. There's no ocean we wouldn't swim. There's no mountain we wouldn't climb. There's nothing that you and I, would, not just with grandchildren, but with a child, a spouse, a family member, a friend, someone that we love, we give our all to. And if you want to know how God feels about you, you just remind yourself of how you feel about someone that you love. There's, there's nothing you wouldn't do for that person that you love. And that gives you some insight into how God feels about you. There's nothing he wouldn't do to be there for you. You know, Paul makes that connection 
between the generosity of our giving and our love. He does it in 2 Corinthians in two separate verses that I think is appropriate for us to put together. And in fact, we have put together for our love through generosity theme. 1 Corinthians 5.14 For Christ's love compels us. It drives us. It motivates us. It propels us forward. For Christ's love compels us. And then 2 Corinthians 9.11 So that you can be generous on every occasion. I don't think it's a stretch theologically or biblically to put those two verses together and to say For Christ's love compels us so that you can be generous on every occasion because what you love and whom you love, you are generous to that person or that thing. You know, next Sunday, we're going to have an opportunity in the context of our worship to to complete an estimate of giving card. That completion of that card as Wiley said to us this morning, really should be an act of worship before the one that we say we love. It really should be an act of holy worship. And, you know, we all come into this opportunity at different places. You know, some people, like Wiley said, You write your check and you don't give a lot of thought behind the rationale. A lot of people look, and and of course we'll be praying, I hope you've been praying, and I hope you'll pray this week about that prayer that we've invited you to think about. Lord, what percentage of my income are you, and that's almost not a fair question, what percentage of my income as if we own it? Biblically, that's not correct. You do understand that, don't you? That you don't own it? We're the temporary custodians and stewards of it? Really, the way we should have phrased that question is, God, what percentage of your income that you've shared with me and made possible because of your blessings in my life am I going to willingly, out of love, return back to you? But we'll go with the original question. What percentage of my income... God, are you leading me to share for the work of your kingdom through my church? And we all are at different places. And and I just want to invite you to be at the place of making the commitment to grow and mature in your giving. You may be at 1% and you would say, God, if you make it possible, I'm going to give 2% next year. You may be at 4%. You may say, God, if you make it possible and bless me financially, I'm going to give 5 Some of you have been tithing for a long time and God has blessed you financially and really, let's be honest, the tithe really doesn't represent that sacrificial gift, that extravagant gift, that breaking the alabaster jar of perfume and pouring it on Jesus' head kind of gift that God would lead you to give. So I hope you'll be praying about that between now and next week, because every one of us have been invited to the banquet table of love. And now, just like this unnamed lady, we're going to have to decide what's going to be our reciprocal response back to Jesus. You know, I I love, and I think many of you probably check out the comics 
on a daily basis or maybe in the Sunday paper. I've always followed the Family Circus cartoon. And in the Family Circus, it has the mother, a grandmother, not the mother, but the grandmother, who's talking to her four grandchildren. And she says, you can give without loving, but you can't love unless you give. Think about that. You can give without loving, but you cannot love unless you give. Amen.